Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, jumping right into it. Today I'm speaking with Megan Dom. Megan is the author of five books, and she writes a bi-weekly column about culture and politics for Medium. She was an opinion columnist for the Los Angeles Times for over a decade. And she's also written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times Magazine, Vogue, and other journals. And her most recent book is The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. And in this conversation, we talk about the book, uh, which focuses mostly on feminism. Uh, We talk about violence against women, campus sexual assault, the new norms of conversation, intersectionality, the 2020 presidential campaign, and uh, related matters. Anyway, I've had many women on the podcast of late who have distinguished themselves both for their honesty and their willingness to touch politically charged topics. I'm thinking of Megan Phelps Roper, Yasmin Muhammad, Caitlin Flanagan, Barry Weiss, and Megan Dom definitely continues that trend. And if those of us on the left are going to be anything more than completely ineffectual and masochistic as the 2020 presidential election approaches, it will be because we have more conversations like this. So without further delay, I bring you Megan Dom. I am here with Megan Dom. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Sam. I just finished your book this morning. I, uh, read every page. Uh, I, I would never pretend otherwise <laughs> and loved it. It's really, it's great. This is your most recent book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. It's very, very funny and very well written and uh, as is your other writing. Thank you. And I, I guess we'll talk about your focus in this book. I, you know, I've read some of your other work, mostly articles, but and maybe touch on some of those, but maybe just to start, summarize your career thus far as a writer? What have you tended to focus on and and how do you view your work as a writer? I've always viewed myself as somebody who sort of looks at the culture and looks at the places where there's kind of a gap between what people think they're supposed to think and feel about something and what they actually think and feel. So I'm interested in hypocrisies. I'm interested in ways we kind of Try, try to convince ourselves of things. So, you know, and I'm an, I'm an essayist. I really, I love that form. This is not an essay collection. These are chapters. It's a chapter mm. book. Yeah, but um, I, I have for, always... For the big kids? Yes. <laughs> it doesn't have illustrations, but may, maybe the paperback. So, yeah, I've always been an essayist, and I've liked to take a personal approach to big ideas. So I started off in the 90s. I had a couple big pieces in The New Yorker, for instance, one of them was about going into debt, trying to be a, a freelance writer in New York. And, and it was about my own experience, but really much more about the sort of economy of the city and, and the romance of the creative life and, and really looking at a whole bunch of stuff. So I continued on in that vein throughout my career. And I've been a magazine journalist. I was an opinion columnist for the Los Angeles Times for more than a decade. And so, yeah, I really, I, I wrote one novel. But I I really see myself as an observer and a sort of anthropologist of, of sorts. I'm not a not a political wonk, and I'm not a straight memoirist generally, but sort of a 
combination of all those things. Yeah, well, well, this new book is really of the moment politically and socially. And uh, I think I'm just, a, I'm a couple of years older than you. And the book has, you know, resonates with, I would say, all of us who are just edging into our 50s. There's a lot around aging. And I guess one question on that point is how much do you think, uh, you know, of the problems we're going to talk about, the problems around political discourse and moral panics or, or what may be perceived as moral panics, and just the kind of the impossibility of finding durable new norms around conversation that seem sane. How much of do you think is just a generational divide that is just making everything difficult to parse? Where does communication become the hardest? Does it just yeah? Is it does is it, it, it animated get bad in a the... linear way as you get as the other people get younger and younger, <laughs> or is it, is it that not really the problem? Well, you know, it's funny if you would ask me this. Six weeks ago, I think the, you know, when the book first came out and when I was really starting to talk about the book, I would have said that it's very much a, a generational issue. And I certainly talk about that a lot in the book and especially around issues of feminism and, you know, the, the lives of women. I, I talk a lot about growing up as a girl in the 70s and the 80s and, and how that might have been different than growing up in, in you know, later decades. But I have to say, as I've gone around and talked about this book the last month or so, I think it's really, it, it, it transcends generations. I've had people of all ages coming up to me and saying, thank you for putting this out there. This really goes beyond any sort of, you know, age issue or, or generational sensibility and, and talks more broadly about the sort of cultural conversational chokehold that we're in. And so you know, I, I really thought that the, the the sort of, you know, I hate to use the term culture wars. And I really, there's all these sorts of words like triggered and, and social justice yeah. warrior that I am not ever using in earnest. And I don't, don't do so in the book. But I, I really think that it's, it's beyond that. I think that there are people with sort of, you know, really want to sort of think about all this stuff beyond their own sort of experience. And so as I have gone around, I've seen this much much less of an issue of my being the age that I am and more of an issue of my having the sensibility that I do. And I, and I think a lot of people share it, regardless of their age. I've heard some speculation around there being ill-appreciated economic variables here, that you know, Gen Z and, and millennials are in the most precarious position in, in uh, you know, any recent generation financially. And I recently read your piece, the essay you referred to in The New Yorker, My Misspent Youth, which I think was published in 1999. Yes. But it reads, you know, it could almost read true of any age, certainly this right. age. Except for the rents. I complain about how high the rent is, and it's like... <laughs> oh, yes, it's like $1,000. Yeah, yes. Right, yeah. <laughs> you just got to change a few of the numbers. But, you know, obviously New York was expensive then, and it's expensive now. But, you know, people in their... 20s and 30s have less of a share of you know accrued wealth than people have tended to have at those ages in generations past and again I'm kind of looking for a you know big picture variables here before we wade into the details it, how much do you think economics is at work here yeah I, you know Douglas Murray has talked about that a lot and I I uh, I gather that's what you're referring to a little bit yeah and, um, yeah. yeah it's interesting to to hear that theory I, th I think there's something there I, I have to admit it's not something I had 
thought a lot about just because, you know, I tend to like see millennials as the people, you know, making a lot of money in dot-com ventures and in Silicon Valley. So, but obviously that's just a tiny slice and a lot of them are Gen Xers, so that's not quite accurate. But yeah, I think there's something to that, this this notion of, of blow it all up or, you know, this isn't this isn't working for us on any level. So we need to radically change the system. Yeah, I think I think there's some there's some validity to that to that theory. I mean, just the fact that socialism seems to be uh, enjoying a, a new dawn and that capitalism is a word of invective now that seems to have taken root in recent years in a way that I don't remember it being true of the the aughts or, or yeah although the 90s. right i mean you know but when i i graduated college in 1992 and there was a recession at that time and and i remember you know everybody saying oh we're the first generation that is not going to be as wealthy as our parents we will never have the standard of living that we grew up i mean it sounds quaint now but you know, that was a really big part of, of our identity. And I don't mean to diminish what's going on now. I'm not comparing these two experiences. But I think, you know, kind of every, every everyone in their 20s has the idea that, that their experience is, is particularly perilous and uh, exasperating and unfair. Well, I guess let, let's start with feminism, which is in many ways the focus of the book. At one point you write, this is quoting you. You're, you're troubled by the ways that contemporary feminism has turned womanhood into another kind of childhood. And then there's a, you, you, at a certain point you discuss what is termed badass feminism. And uh, you say that badass feminism feels paradoxically like the pink aisle at the toy store. How do, how do you view feminism yeah. at this moment? And how much trouble are you getting into for viewing it that oh, way? Oh, I've been getting into trouble over this for several years. It, it's, it was this predates the book. So yeah, I just to back up a little bit, I started thinking about all of this stuff probably around 2015, maybe late 2014. I was still a columnist at the LA Times at that time, you know, looking for a topic every week. And I started to notice, especially on Twitter, that there was a lot of discussion around women's issues that seemed really almost in, in direct opposition to the actual state of women. You know, we had in reality, the women doing better than ever. There were more women graduating from college. There were more girls who were high school valedictorians, on and on and on. And yet this... And more more than men. I mean, they were doing better than men in those That's what I mean. Too. Yeah, they right. were... That's yeah. Yes, they were doing better than men, yeah. and men were actually falling behind in a lot of ways. Obviously yeah. not in the highest corridors of power, but in the aggregate, girls and women were sort of soaring, soaring way above men and boys. So that was going on. But at the same time, there was like this discourse on social media that, that was really rooted in this premise that that we were under the thumb of, of the patriarchy. And we started hearing terms like toxic masculinity. And there were these hashtags like, you know, kill all men. And I bathe in male tears. And this phenomenon of ironic misandry came into into being, you know, this idea that Oh, you know, we can we can make fun of men and we're just being ironic and, you know, it's it's OK. And like I, I understood that it's not like I was taking hashtag ban men literally, but I just thought it was kind of curious that the, the 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 conversation around the state of women was was, you know, really had very little to do with the actual state of women. And so I was going to write um, a sort of a, sort of manifesto called You Are Not a Badass. And it was just going to be sort of poking fun at this and 
and trying to, you know, get a handle on it and say, you know, let's let's get our get our acts together here. And uh, this was around 2016. I assumed that Hillary Clinton would be the president and that everybody would be able to sort of take a, a ribbing there. And obviously that did not happen. And so, you know, once I sort of collected myself, the shock of the election, I really started thinking more broadly about what was going on culturally. And, and I was much more interested in, in these sort of larger problems of, of speech and being able to talk about things and, and so on. Now, that said, I'm like a white chick. So what can I write about? I can write about the experience of, of women. So I started the book really talking about my own experience growing up uh, in, the, in the 70s and the 80s. And we can get more into that in, you know, if, if you'd like. But really, I do think that there was a, it was a remarkable time to be a little girl in the 1970s for, for various reasons. And I started to sort of look at what was it about my experience that was making me perhaps not relate to this sort of Twitter conversation around women and, and where the generational divides might be. Yeah, so you were saying that it wasn't as gendered a childhood as you observe it to be now. And that actually kind of surprised me. I mean, that, that was my decade of childhood as well. And um, I didn't have sisters. I didn't have a um, clear view of it, as, a, as certainly in, in elementary school. But it does seem right to me. But I, I was surprised to not have a clear memory of how I thought gender was being mm. amplified or selected against, you know, in childhood. But it's some of the examples you gave, it did seem impressively gender neutral in, in many ways. I mean, just the fact that yeah. you know, boys and girls would watch a film like The Bad News Bears rather than, you know, some Disney fairy centered uh, or prin right. princess centered confection. And that, yeah, I hadn't taken the time to recall what it was like to be a kid. See, I wonder if the fact that it hadn't occurred to you actually suggests that it was so so neutral. It wouldn't even imprint on your on your your memory. So, yeah, I mean, there's actually data on this there. You know, you would go into a toy store in the 1970s and there were not there would be like not a, a pink toy aisle for girls and blue for boys. There was just a sort of androgynous aesthetic about that time. Not in all corners. Obviously, you had like hyper hyper masculinity and, and, you know, hyper femininity, Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and Charlie's Angels. And, you know, I don't mean to like totally oversell this point, but I do think that there was something about being a kid in that time that was really freeing in terms of, of gender expression. It was, it was totally cool to be a tomboy if you were a girl. You know, being a girly girl was, was not what you wanted to be. You know, I, I don't think it's any accident that the, the two biggest child movie stars of the 1970s were Jodie Foster in the movies yeah. and Christy McNichol in, in television. And they, you know, both are, you know, very out lesbians, not were not girly girls and are, are not uh, girly women. So so I started thinking about that. And, you know, when I when I really when I think about the ways that sometimes younger women get irritated with me because they say that I'm, I'm diminishing the, the difficulty of being a woman or I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of not appreciating how, how hard it is for them in certain ways. I, I, I really had to go back and, and reckon with the fact that, that, you know, there was this great gift of, of growing up in this time when it really wasn't, it, I, it never once occurred to me that, that I was anything but, you know, as good as boys, if not better. 
And it wasn't until later, I think we got into this, you know, girls gone wild sort of raunch culture ethos in, in the early aughts. And, you know, for kids, like you said, the Disney princess thing came along. And I think that that sort of shaped shaped some sort of attitudes around women and, and certainly contributed to their to their frustration. And, and uh, you know, this book is very much a self-interrogation. It is not a polemic. It's the process of me trying to make sense of, of why I'm not necessarily aligned with some of the, the more prominent features of the cultural discussion. And that was, that was one thing that I, I really looked at. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and this is not to deny our history or even our recent history of um, kind of madmen level misogyny and the political disempowerment for women. I just watched a Bond movie with my, my oldest daughter, who's turning 11. She didn't know who James Bond was. And so with some, <laughs> some feeling of trepidation, I put on Goldfinger, which I hadn't seen in 20 years or more. And um, I think it was released in 64, so somewhere, it's a mid-60s film. And I mean, the level of sexism in it is just jaw-dropping. I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, she, she just did not even know how to interpret what she was seeing. You know, and we had a, a good laugh over it. Although there is, in fact, nothing more surprising in that film, or perhaps any film, than the most emasculating garment I think ever put on a a leading man. People can Google this image, but Sean Connery puts on a uh, terry cloth. I don't know what you call it—a romper or something—by <laughs> the pool. Uh, just <laughs> not you, a bathrobe, like something. No, else. <laughs> no, it's it's like a, a short, short bathroom, you know, short shorts integrated, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like a bodysuit that's made of blue terry cloth. So I'm terry pretty sure- Terry cloth it, was the cloth of that era, I think, yeah, too. I'm, yes. I'm pretty sure a Google search of Sean Connery and terry cloth will turn up this this horror show, but it, it's so strange. It really is like a glitch in the matrix. Like this just can't have ever happened, really. Anyway, so, but just, you know, seeing, you know, him slap women on the ass, I mean, it's not even ironic. I was trying to figure out how it was supposed to play to the audience in 1964. I think it just is him being dashing in yet another way. So it's obviously we have to acknowledge that there's a serious motivation for feminism, but what's actually the front line now, do you think? Yeah, you know, so there's a there's a scene in the book where I talk about being in my um early to mid 20s and I was living in an apartment in New York City, a couple of roommates. There were three roommates at any given time. So, you know, somebody would move out and we would have to look for a new roommate. So, you know, on one of these, you know, we would have a day where people would come in and sort of audition to be our roommate. And it was me and another woman were the same age. We were looking for our third roommate. And this guy came in. He was like probably in his, or he was probably in his mid to late 30s. Like we, we assumed he was like in his 50s, but probably not that old. And an old man in his mid-30s. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> which, you know, when you're, when you're 25, that's, that's everybody. Yeah. And he said something like, oh, you know, well, here's an idea. What if, what if I bought the food and you girls did the cooking? And he kind of came at us with this idea. And we were unable to look at each other because we were going to burst out laughing. We thought this was so absurd as to be hilarious. And we were like embarrassed for him. That was mm. how we how we took that moment. And um, you know, as soon as he left, we sort of fell all over ourselves. 
And, you know, I talk about this in the book. This was probably 1995. Okay, so, you know, I think that, you know, probably 20 years earlier, if our mothers had been in a situation like that, our mothers who were adults through the Mad Men era, who were working in offices where slaps on the ass were just what you had to deal with, I think they would have been offended by this guy in a way that we were not. And fast forward 20 years later, if if that had happened, uh, you know, today with young women, I think that they would have probably like gotten really angry and run to their computers and gone on their on their Tumblr accounts or, or you know, gone to Twitter to to rant about this guy and, and the misogyny and the sexism and and how nothing has changed, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really interested in like what it is about that particular moment that made my roommate and I actually just laugh and feel sorry for this guy when our mother's generations would not have done that and the current young generation wouldn't have done that. And I'm I'm still figuring out the answer to that. I really, I'm not quite sure, but it's definitely a phenomenon. Yeah, well, it would definitely be perceived as a microaggression now, if not a macroaggression to, to <laughs> right. have, have such a sexist assumption. But what you're pointing out there is that these are circumstances which now are routinely described as kind of yet more evidence of the power that men have over women or just assumed they have over women. You know, this is like kind of the, the vestiges of patriarchy. But you as a woman, now again in the mid-90s, perceived these situations not through that lens. I mean, you did not feel disempowered. In fact, you were actually empowered. Oh, we had all the power in yeah. that situation. For one thing, we had the lease on a on a Manhattan apartment. Okay, so that that puts right. anybody in power. But yeah, he, you know, as far as we were concerned, he was like a complete loser, and it's it wasn't even he he could have been like you know any kind of guy. Uh, you know, he could <laughs> he could have been our own age and somebody we found attractive. And if he had said something like that, we would have also burst out laughing. And that's, you know, one of the things, again, that I talk about in the book is this notion that, you know, what we have now is this sort of punching up approach to talking about men. Like, you know, in comedy, you can punch up or you punch down, right? So the idea being that you can make fun of people who have more power than you. You can tell jokes about celebrities or politicians or rich people or whatever. Not cool to make fun of people who have less power. So by making a sort of sport of making fun of white men, of men in general, of talking about all the ways that they are, you know, complete, you know, completely putting you down and and are, you know, ruining the world. That seems to me a version of punching up. And it seems to me completely misguided because what you're actually doing in that situation is handing them power that they don't necessarily have. The minute you start piling on somebody, you are saying this person has more power than I do because I have license to pile on them. And that really, really troubles me as somebody who, you know, never thought that any given man had more power than I did. Yeah, I guess I think one power differential that doesn't go away and or it doesn't go away without technology on some level is just in the sphere of physical violence and its concerns. I mean, it's right. just it is a fact that women have lived for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, as homo sapiens in the company of men who generally outweigh them, uh, you know, generally a head taller or thereabouts, and also 
you know, have even at the same weight have greater upper body strength. Yeah, of and course. so it's just so, so violent. The threat of violence is just an issue. And I guess we'll talk about sexual violence and, and in particular the campus sexual assault right. epidemic or the imagined epidemic, depending. But I've always very naturally seen this from a woman's point of view. I mean, this, this issue of kind of the dynamics of human violence because I was raised by a single mom. You know, now I have two daughters. I've spent a lot of time thinking about violence and, and self-defense and training in, in martial arts and, and all the rest. So it's like I've kind of my head is, has been in that game for a very long time. And the moral core of the problem of violence has been most centrally aligned with the problem of violence against women, at least you right. know, in, in my mind. So and it's, yes, it's, we and you know and children weaker people who are physically weaker yeah yeah yes. yeah and so it's just very natural so like when you go to a slogan uh, you know like a me too slogan like you know believe all women right or believe victims my emotional default is certainly there and yet it's you know every time you turn up an example where that proves to be a bad heuristic right where you have a woman who is lying for you know reasons however inscrutable or you have, you know, someone who's mentally ill or, and, and just the amount of harm that does to all the legitimate, you know, grievances right. out there. It's just, and, and that's something we, we haven't really focused on as, I mean, this is now not a, a women's issue, but like, you know, like whenever there's a moral hoax, like the, you know, the Jussie Smollett case, right? That's so awful. And it, it's awfulness is, it seems to me, unappreciated on the left. I mean, it just does mm. so much harm. But anyway, it's hard not to honor a bias in favor of basically just believing the claims that come, at least in that direction. Well, right. And I don't think there's, you know, any I, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. So if somebody tells me something, I'm going to listen and assume they're telling me the truth, you know, until until I find out otherwise. But, you know, I just want to be clear when I say that I've never felt like I have less power than a man that's not saying that I've never felt threatened by a man that I have not felt frightened walking down the street al right. alone at night. So let's just be very clear about that. And I and I say in the book, like, you know, there, yes, there are there are physical power differentials that, you know, there's all kinds of ways that and reasons that women have historically had a really raw deal for all kinds of reasons. And we can get into that. But, you know, I am interested in in why, you know, in this current moment, there's such an incentive to sort of apply this assumption just across the board. You know, there was a survey done by Thomson Reuters about a, about a year or so ago about the 10 most dangerous countries in the world for women. Okay. Yeah. This I don't was know amazing. if you remember that. Yeah, okay. No. So, so at the top, it was like India, Pakistan, I think Somalia, you know, the places that, that you would imagine. And the United States was number 10 on this list of the world's most dangerous countries for women. And, yeah. you know, when people said, well, how did you come to this? They had surveyed about 500 people who were global, you know, experts in global women's issues or something. And they said, well, you know, in the wake of the Me Too movement, it was important to recognize that just because you're in an affluent country, you know, you're, you're not automatically safe. And and, you know, we, we really need to to acknowledge the experiences of, of women in the United States. And I just thought, OK, A, that is not a data point. And B, what are you getting out of this? This is like amazing to me. Like, what is it? Does that sell more magazines? Does that make people feel like 
included in the world and the conversation in some way. That's what just constantly baffles me. And I think that's to, to your point, like this, that does real damage, because if I read that and I lived in India and, and have, was having to deal with, you know, the horrific conditions for women in, in countries like that, I would be pretty pissed if I saw the United States just kind of thrown in there on that list. Yeah, well, that's that's what makes this look like a moral panic rather than a, a set of legitimate ethical and political concerns. And that I guess we should focus on the claims about the campus sexual assault problem now, because, you know, if if you dumb down the definition of what constitutes an assault enough, I mean, one, you're driving up the perceived risk, right? Because people just assume that, you know, when you say that, you know, one in five women right. get sexually assaulted in their college careers. You know, I've even heard that put as one in five women get raped yeah, in college. Yeah, which was never right. true. Yeah. Right. So, so, but it just, you know, the fact that, you know, sexual assault and rape are practically synonyms in most people's minds. And, you know, depending on how much you dumb down the definition, it's, you're doing real harm to the actual victims of real sexual, you know, terrifying right. and real... horrible sexual assaults. <laughs> right. right. So. But the problem, okay, so I absolutely agree with you, but the problem there is that how do you even articulate that point without using a phrase like real, victims of real assault? Like you start to get in. As a white man, you just get on your own podcast and you do it. <laughs> but was it, was it, the, was it the, who was the um, politician who was talking about legitimate rape, right? And somehow, right. you know, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. you couldn't, that the, the, you couldn't get pregnant from legitimate rape because the body would shut that down. So, you know, we, we've run into all these tripwires. Well, well, that was no, but was that Lindsey Graham? Who was that? That was no. Uh, it was it was. Um, I want to say Aiken. It was not no. not Lindsey Graham. No, uh, okay. Well, but all yeah, there's right. all the back. problem is it's like all these all these tripwires because you know we, we want to talk about the, this very dynamic that you described that if we if we make everything sexual assault that 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 it does no favor to victims of quote unquote, real sexual assault. But then how do you even have the conversation without using a phrase like real sexual assault? And, and you know, and then this gets into like, well, we can't have this, com we can't have the conversation to begin with because there's no way to do it without blaming victims or making feel, people feel uncomfortable or, or doing harm to them. So we just, we skip the whole thing and we don't even solve this problem of, of how you talk about mm -hmm. it. So, you know, the not talking about it makes it almost, you know, impossible for anybody who, who tries. So, right. Well, so, I, guess, yeah. well I guess let me, let me uh, differentiate, you know, real from, from <laughs> fake here in defense of basic sanity. I mean, I, I don't think there's a, perhaps there's not a bright line, but this statistic of one in five, I think was trumpeted, you know, from the highest places. I even yes. think President Obama it, talked about Obama. it. Yeah. Yes. So, we have the president of the United States announcing to a worried population that if you send your girls to college, they stand a one in five chance of being, quote, sexually assaulted. Now, as a dad, if I thought there was a 20% chance that my daughters were going to be raped when they go off to whatever good school they worked hard to get into, I would never send them there, right? I mean, it would no. be insane. You got, you and know, there would be no need for college admission scandals no, either, right? No, because exactly. nobody would be applying to college. It would be so much easier to get in, yes. Yeah. So what do you think is rational to believe about the risk that yeah. young women run going to college? 
Well, I mean, the one in five thing, you know, even the, 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 the people who did that study, that study was based on, I think, two different schools, you know, just two schools, one of which was a commuter school, essentially UMass Boston. And, you know, the, the one in f- sexual assault was being defined as anything from rape to some sort of unwanted touch or, or groping, that sort of thing. So the 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 range of uh, of experiences that could fall into the assault category is is huge, and so you know that the one in five rape thing was never true. This is like a game of telephone, right? right? Okay, so one in five sexual assault, you could kind of massage that if you were going to define sexual assault as really basically anything of a sexual nature that is un- unwanted. But you know, other statistics have been more precise and and come up with things like one in 42, one in 52, something like that. So I, I really think that ultimately, though, it doesn't matter what the statistics are. Like one in 52 is still too much. OK, like that's that's fine. And, and you know, again, what I'm interested in in this book and, you know, I am again, I'm somebody who who, who looks at, at at people's behavior and, and looks at my own experience and tries to, you know, connect the dots and fill in the blanks here. I, I'm really not as interested in the numbers as I am in like, what people are getting out of this? Why? Why is it that if you have a bad experience, it's so much more? It, it's so much easier. It's so much more appealing to kind of fold it into a victimization experience than into one that where you just say, "Ugh, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have done that." And that's not to say that that there aren't victims and that victimization experiences happen too often. But I, I really have noticed that. You know, as opposed to when I was in college, you know, you, having an, an icky sexual experience was just kind of the cost of doing business when it came to growing up and figuring out who you are. And, and this was just sort of, you know, what, what happens along the way. And I don't mean rape. I mean, just something that you regret doing and that right. hopefully you won't do again. But, but for some reason, there's almost like no lane for that kind of feeling about about something that you may have gone through. And, and I, I think of a lot about why that might be. And, and I'm again, I'm this one of these things that I'm still trying to figure out. Yeah, well, that, that's where it breaks down ethically in a scary way. When you have a culture that is rewarding victim status to a degree that kind of the straightest path to becoming a, a kind of social superstar is to have a legitimate claim to have survived something awful. And, yeah. and when, when you have these examples, and there's at least one in your book of essentially bad dates or, you know, sexual encounters that people wind up regretting. Or, I mean, but again, there's just like, there's no use of force or implied use of force or coercion, or it's just that it becomes a, you know, a he said, she said around something that is just, it's like, we don't want to do that again, but there are these cases that both in your book and in the news now where it seems like young women are being encouraged to dredge their memories for any sign that this experience that they just didn't like in the end can be weaponized yeah. to their advantage. And then what follows is you have this very strange policy wrapped up with Title IX where young men on college campuses can get accused of sexual assault or rape over something where, where the evidence isn't even presented to them. They don't, they don't even, I mean, it's this very weird gray area where, okay, if there was a real, quote, real sexual assault or a rape, 
then call the police, right? I mean, yes, so people, real, real rape. Yes, pe- that's right. People should show up with guns when that sort of thing happens, right? But no, we're, we're in this sort of no man's land where this is not anything like a crime that could be reported to police, but it is nevertheless enough to destroy this person's yeah. career at a, at a university. And I don't know if you want to talk more about it, but these are really Kafka-esque episodes yes. in the lives of men, which unfortunately make this what should seem like a good aphorism, you know, believe all women or believe victims, fairly unworkable on a college campus. Yeah. And this is one of those things that because it came from the Obama administration, everyone sort of um, on our side, on the left, just assumed, oh, well, it must be the right thing to do. So, yeah, in 2011, there was a, a Dear Colleague letter, the notorious Dear Colleague letter, which was sent out to any university that was receiving federal funding, which is just about all of them, saying that there was going to be, um, they needed to follow a certain procedure if there was a case of a, a woman making a co- complaint of sexual assault. And there was a whole series of things you had to, you had to, you know, let the, let, you know, let the woman, you know, she was entitled to, I think, having somebody, you know, uh, be with her when she made this testimony. The man, on the other hand, was not allowed to have an attorney. I, I don't quote me verbatim here. This is a very sort of cursory summary. I don't, you know, I, I go into it in a lot of detail in the book. Mm. But, you know, essentially these were kangaroo courts. And you had cases where boys were accused of things. They didn't know what they were accused of. And, and the woman was just allowed to sort of proceed with a case that really was very, very muddy. And the worst thing about this was that even if the woman decided that she didn't want to proceed with it, by the time it was reported to the Title IX office, the Title IX office was a- obliged to go through with it. So, and, and you know, what, what had come down from the Obama administration was that, you know, if, if the schools did not adhere to this, they risked losing their federal funding. And, you know, one of the great ironies of, of the Trump administration was that it took Betsy DeVos to to reverse many of these policies. You know, she was the one mm-hmm. who finally stepped in and said, you know, this is wrong. We're going to roll this back. And now, you know, I, I like Obama a whole lot more than I like DeVos, to, to put it mildly. But who's the more reasonable party here? But, you know, again, to even hint that you may be on the side of Betsy DeVos will, will get you thrown out of liberal circles and in, in this case called a a rape apologist, but yeah, you know, yeah. Well, again, unhelpfully, there are the cases of the opposite sort where you have what seem to be legitimate accusations of rape from a student swept under the rug because, you know, say the, the this person's a you know a star football player or whatever, and and the college right. just doesn't want to look into it for obvious reasons. And so, again, it's just the details in every instance matter. And the problem with any moral panic is that it makes it impossible to focus on the details because the moment something fits a certain type, there's just a default emotional hijacking, which makes rational deliberation impossible because, you know, people are defenestrated for even taking the necessary moment to figure out what happened, right? Right. Well, so we seem to have this logic that asking questions, trying to actually get at the facts equals skepticism, and then skepticism somehow equals harm. Mm. And so there's like this continuum of, of really diminishing returns. You know, so there's a, there's a scene in the book where I go to a Take Back the Night rally at the University of Iowa. There's a lot of the book that takes place at the University of Iowa because I was teaching there for a semester. 
And, you know, I'm sitting on the grass in the quad and there's a there's a microphone and, a, you know, a mic stand and a whole bunch of mostly undergraduates, some some older, older kids. And I think some even some some staff, maybe adult staff were getting up and telling stories about being sexually assaulted, about having really bad experiences. And, you know, Take Back the Night has been around for a long time. It's actually been around since the 70s, but it's this sort of initiative to to get you know, particularly college students to to talk about these experiences and and sort of bring them out in the open. And and I remember from my own college days, and I know people who were really healed by by the experience of being able to share these. So you know, I was sitting there listening to to some of these kids, and and some of their stories were were really harrowing. A lot of them took place in childhood. A lot of them, the things they were talking about, had nothing to do with college. They were talking about sexual abuse in in the family at home. And then some of them were talking about encounters that that happened uh, more recently in college. And, you know, it it wasn't I, I, I believed them. The issue wasn't really about believing or not believing them, but more that I, I was noticing that there was almost this like, I don't even want to say solidarity. There was this catharsis in, in telling their stories that went beyond catharsis and really was like, some kind of deliverance. It's a, into it's a religious revival in a, in a way. A yeah. club. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I had this like horrifying moment of cognitive dissonance because I remember George Will, of all people, writing a column, you know, back, you know, probably around, you know, several years earlier, making this very point and, and in a sort of clumsy way and saying, you know, the, the, the reason these women are making these accusations is that the minute you're a you're a sexual assault survivor. You you automatically get entry into this club, and it's a special club. And you know, as an opinion columnist myself, I remember reading that and thinking, "Oh gosh, like <laughs> you don't have enough words to try to make this point, and and this is like really dangerous territory here." And he got in huge trouble for it. But I I was sitting there on the grass listening to these students, and I thought, well, that's exactly what George Will was talking about, and that's kind of what's happening here. I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it a club, but it is definitely you know, the, the, the real experience I felt wasn't what had happened during this thing that they that felt like an assault. The real experience was this moment where they were telling the story. And right. so there's like this whole other level around it. And that's what's animating a, a lot of this, I think. Well, yeah, I think it's at the extreme, it's worse than a club. I think it's a cult. And the reason why you can see that it has a cultic dimension to it is again the the moralizing of everything that just prevents a rational conversation about details or facts, be they facts of human biology or actual history or you know just being journalistically careful it also there there's internal contradictions to it that even when you point them out just cannot be acknowledged by otherwise intelligent people. I mean, one that came to mind reading your book is you describe this controversy or pseudo-controversy that, that I had missed. I guess I was off Twitter enough so as to, to have been spared, but it's referred to as the United Airlines leggings gate. <laughs> leggings gate. So, yes, yeah. I can't believe. How did you possibly miss yeah, yeah, that? Yeah, maybe maybe uh, refresh, refresh our memories about what that was, <laughs> and I'll tell you what it, what it made me think of. Um, well... So this was a situation. There was a, a United Airlines gate at the Denver airport, and there was a, a family traveling on employee buddy passes, which is something that if you if you're related to airline personnel, 
or, or you're just sort of friends with the airline personnel, you can get a get a pass to fly either free or at a very deep discount. But there's always been a dress code for this. So, you know, this is like back in the day you used to see, you know, pilots and, and flight attendants, they, they would fly on, on buddy passes if they're trying to get somewhere, but they'd be wearing a suit. It, there used to be coat and tie was part of the, the dress code for this. It is no longer that strict. So, but this family with, I think they had three young girls and two of them were wearing leggings, you know, as, as one does. And the gate agent was saying, well, you're not allowed to get on this plane with leggings. Uh, you, you know, you got to put something on over this. And, and the family was all too happy to comply. They sort of improvised and found a way to put skirts on the girls or whatever. And this woman, not even in this same line, she was in line for a different flight, was sort of watching this from afar and just sort of invented a whole story around this and started tweeting that the gate agent was policing the dress of young girls and, and sexualizing young girls by saying they couldn't wear leggings. And this thing just blew up. This woman had a lot of followers. Celebrities started tweeting about this. You know, oh, I wear leggings. This is disgusting. United Airlines is misogynist. On and on and on. And this this went on for like a solid day. And, and I, I guess I didn't have much to do that day because I was like, entranced by this. And it's just such a, a perfect example of like, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater. And, and this had nothing to do with anything. But there was such glee in attaching yourself to this cause and the incentives for doing so if you were a public figure or you wanted to be a public figure were so great and so outweighed any incentive for getting the story straight that it, it just felt to me like it encapsulated this this phenomenon perfectly. Mm. Like we just we are we are just disincentivized from actually looking at the facts and trying to get at something complicated, because frankly, complication is out the window with social media. You you just can't do it. Right. So, so the complicating factor here was that these were not just random passengers. These were employee buddies flying free and they had right. a rule in place and they were simply trying to enforce that rule. Yes. But what this made me think of is that, I mean, I can say to a moral certainty that every celebrity, every, you know, woke person on Twitter who was outraged by United Airlines enforcing some standard of dress on young women, these same people are going to celebrate the hijab as a sign of female empowerment under Islam. These are the same people who will count it as a sign of bigotry against Muslims when you complain about the patriarchal and theocratic imposition on women's freedom that happens in the Muslim community. Right. Dress being the, the front lines of that. And so this is a perfect contradiction. There's no way to square these intuitions, right? And yet pointing this out will convince no one. It's like a short circuit of <laughs> ethical rationality. Right. Um, so we're not in the territory of a rational conversation about human well-being anymore when we're unable to simply right. talk about these and, things. Right. And what it is also is misapplied intersectionality. Yeah. So the reason that we can't talk about uh, hijab is that we are assuming ourselves to have more power than people in those countries, whether or not that's true in all cases. And therefore, we any any critique of it is punching down. Now that in and of itself is is racist, yeah. right? And and you know and one you know intersectionality is is one of these things that you know in and of itself was perfectly useful. It was um you know it, it was a legal theory. It had to do with a a workplace discrimination lawsuit. 
General Motors, Kimberly Crenshaw is a law professor who first coined it, even at the time sent it, said it was meant to be a provisional concept. Like, it, you know, it's, 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 it's perfectly useful in its original iteration. It has just been elasticized and diluted into not just meaninglessness, but something that can, can do real harm. Just to remind people, I mean, maybe everyone knows what this term means, but its sane definition and application is, is, is just an observance of the fact that people from various groups can suffer different and context-dependent differences in kind of the level of discrimination they experience. But you can have black women who, in certain circumstances, feel the discrimination of you know merely being women, but they have the added variable of being black. And there are circumstances where they, they have advantages over black men, even though men tend to have advantages over women in these same circumstances because of the certain stigma attached to black men, especially around you know crime and violence. And so right. all of this is totally sane to try to parse. I mean, it's, it's not that everyone is always in precisely the same boat and we have a color and sex blind society. We don't. But what this has turned into, as I have repeatedly said, is the unhappiest game of Dungeons and Dragons ever devised, where you just you, you have people comparing, you know, like, you know, rolling the, the intersectional dice and seeing who's got more power in a competition of all against all in identity politics. And yeah, it, it's making it impossible to talk about certain things that are just objectively true, that most women the world over who wear the veil under Islam are not graduates of Barnard or Vassar who are doing it on a lark because they, they feel like it's a way to take back their sexuality. The, <laughs> well, that the, would be cultural appropriation. Yeah, yeah, right. Case, yeah, yeah, well, they, they, they are doing that, right? You know, But most are forced to do it because they're living in a circumstance of, of real misogyny, sexism, and coercion. And whether they would even use the words to describe their circumstance like that or not, right? And that should be absolutely obvious to yeah. real feminists everywhere. <laughs> real feminists, yes, I, right. I like the word real. I'm not, I'm not going to back off. <laughs> well, no, it's, there's no, there's no substitute for yeah. it. Yeah, and, and, and we're just so unable to have any sort of conversation that requires like two or three steps of logic. You know, there, there was an example of this that really speaks to your point, I think. It happened, a, I don't know, maybe six weeks or so ago. There was a story in the New York Times written by a mother talking about how her, her teenage son, she felt, was like, uh, you know, standing at the gateway to the, to the alt-right because he was, first he had used the word triggered, ironically, kind of jokingly, and then he was like, you know, watching Jordan Peterson videos and... Hmm perhaps listening to your podcast or, you know, and so I did, the headline was something like, you know, watch out for your for your white sons. They're they're being uh, they're being sucked into uh, the alt right. And, and it was a really, you know, I hate to use this word. It, it was a hysterical piece that the level of hysteria was just was just over the top. And it, it really was sounding it was reminding me a lot of the conversation around the satanic preschool panics yeah. in the yeah. late 80s, early 90s. And and uh you know, so I, I actually, you know, I tweeted something about it. I, I said, you know, oh, this is really, this is social panic. This is really over the top. And I got a lot of likes on the tweet and I felt good about myself. And, you know, a funny thing happened. Three different friends of mine, people I know, people who have boys, 
messaged me privately and they said, you know what, I saw your tweet and you're wrong about that. You're, you're actually, that was glib. And this is a real phenomenon. And it's something I worry about a lot as a parent. And, you know, you, you really need to, to think harder about what you're saying. And, and we talked about it a little bit. We sort of went back and forth. And it turned out that what was really going on with these boys was that they were being fed this intersectional doctrine in school, these ideas that as, as white males, they were the oppressors, that they needed to, to, to be quiet and listen, that they were the enemy, this sort of thing. You know, whether or not they were being told that verbatim, that's what they were perceiving. And that was what was making the Jordan Peterson videos of the world so appealing to them. And these things were playing off of each other. And that was actually the real story. The real story was that misapplied intersectionality was enabling a certain degree of, of alt-right influence. And that should have been the column. Like, that should mm. have been the story. But the, the problem is that it takes too long to say that. And I, I feel like, you know, 20 years ago, no editor would have let that story, as it stood, go, go to print. The, 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 the more complicated picture would have to have been introduced. But for all kinds of reasons, we're just not able to, to tell that story. We're not able to talk about anything in such complication anymore. And we're really just having like shouting matches about things that aren't true. Yeah, well, th this brings up a point here, which kind of explains the frustration that yeah, actually many of our listeners may be feeling now. So we've spent this whole conversation essentially running down the left for its irrationality and kind of moral confusion. But we're, you know, we're both liberals. We're both, I would imagine, we're left of center on almost every relevant Do our friends question. believe that about us well, though, anymore? That's one of those questions. Yeah, well, I mean, I, but, I mean, we could prove it if we just ran down all the checkboxes. But, yep. but then the question is, why are we focused on the left and not the right here? And the issue here is that, I mean, you point this out in your book at one point, the problems on the right are so obvious. The problems with Trump and, and his personality cult are so easy to point out, and the velocity with which they appear in the news is so startling that it's it's just grindingly boring to keep enumerating these things. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's, there's nothing hard to see about what's wrong with you know, neo-Nazis with tiki torches in Charlottesville, right? And I, I just think that it's interesting to figure out exactly how big a problem that is, but right. There's not much to say about it. And I, 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 you know, on other podcasts and other contexts, I spend a lot of time whinging about Trump. But again, it, it is deadly boring to do. And the closer problem and, and, the, and the harder problem to parse is the one you just described here, which is the, the way in which the dogmas and taboos on the left are not only making it impossible for you know, us to get our act together, it's creating circumstances where, at various points, the only intellectually honest voice, a in this case, a young man may hear on a given topic, could be coming from a genuinely sinister source. Right. If you raise right. the cost of intellectual honesty high enough on gender differences and you know biological differences in in between men and women, say, you're going to ruin the the career of anyone who acknowledges that there are any real physical or psychological differences between men and women, well, then 
the only people who will acknowledge those differences are, you know, maniacs who have right. nothing to lose, right? You know, right. And, you know, so whether they're neo-Nazis or, you know, maniacs of another flavor, you'll find them on YouTube. And, you know, the algorithm, as we know, keeps pointing people in the direction of more and more extreme voices. The cost of, of lying to ourselves is, apart from just being problematic intrinsically, it's deeply unpragmatic politically right. because it's, it's, it really is empowering the right in a fairly direct way. Yeah. And, and I think we pick on the left because we expect more from the left. Yeah. It, there's nothing, like you said, there's nothing, um, there's, there's really nothing new about, about pointing out that, that Tucker Carlson is, is a, a blowhard who doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, this is why I, I don't use words like snowflake and and triggered and even woke. It's it, I love the word woke for mm -hmm. like a lot of reasons. It's yeah. got great consonants. It rhymes with a lot of stuff. It's it's great, but I feel like it's it's been weaponized. It's really on the verge of of uselessness. But yeah, the, the, you know, this uh, people said to me so many times, like, don't write this book. I mean, I had been sort of on about this stuff in in my column and elsewhere for the last several years and. And, um, you know, I was trying to figure out how to do this as a book and how to approach this. And, and people were like, don't do it. It's not worth it. It's, you know, it's not the moment. People are hurting. We're so we're, we're so upset over Trump that we just we can't stomach it. And, you know, my response to that is somebody who's been writing for, you know, 25 years. And, and, you know, this is why I'm why I'm in the business is to is to say these things like if if, if we don't do it. The other side will do it. If the smart, thoughtful people don't talk about this stuff, the stupid, thoughtless people are happy to do the job for us. And, and it's almost like we've got this horrible catch-22 where, like, the people who are, are smart enough to, to have conversations that, that might uh, be productive are, are smart enough to keep their mouths shut. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it is such an opportunity cost to touch one of these third rails yeah. I mean, we're both very lucky in that respect. You know, I mean, to be difficult to cancel is, it doesn't even scale in a, in a linear way with fame and wealth necessarily. I mean, you see some of the most powerful people in, in media who, who are just terrified of being canceled, you know, with one wrong word. Yeah. And rightly so. I mean, it's, it's a weird geometry to the, the space where, it, you know, the truly safe space is, difficult to find where you can just speak honestly on all these topics without really looking over your shoulder. And um, it's definitely not at the top of media. I mean, you just look at how no. you know, you someone like Roseanne Barr, you know, one tweet, and she's got the number one show on television, and right. she's gone. And it's um, surprising. But so you had your own adventures with what you call free speech YouTube, <laughs> which follows nicely yeah. from the article you, you mentioned. Perhaps you can tell us what it was like to be right. Megan in front of her computer. <laughs> so yeah, around, uh, yeah, like I said, around 2015, I started noticing that just a lot of the conversation in the, in the elite media, on the opinion pages of the New York Times, uh, on NPR, all the, all the sort of go-to places for intelligent conversation. We, we grew up, you know, just trusting these sources and going along with it. It, it really started to feel very narrow. There was sort of one frame. It had to do with oppression of women. It had to do with, um, you know, how, how, you know, white, white men were, were dominating everything. You know, that, that, not that that 
not that there's not truth there, but it seemed like, you know, every other story was was in this vein. And I, I was feeling really alienated from it. And then, you know, at the same time, on a personal level, there was stuff going on with me. I was I was in the middle of a divorce. And, you know, my marriage, for all of its problems, was really rich in a way because my husband and I were intellectual allies. We just talked about stuff all the time. We were really on the same page when it came to a lot of these issues. And, you know, the, the title of the book, The Problem with Everything, you know, it, it, it refers to, you know, obviously the ways in which so many things are labeled problematic now. But really, the problem with everything, to my mind, is is the thing that we're thinking about all the time, like that topic that you're always chewing on, like, why is the world the way it is? And what am I missing here? And what am I not getting? Like, that's the problem with everything. So my husband and I would just talk about the problem with everything all the time. So when we split up and I lost him as a conversation partner, at least, you know, not somebody, we had a very amicable split, amicable split, but, you know, we weren't in the same household talking all the time. I found that, you know, NPR wasn't really doing the job for me anymore. And I sort of wandered over uh, onto what I call free speech YouTube. It was, it was you know, much later identified as, as, you know, the intellectual dark web, which I have mixed feelings about that term. But yeah, you uh, love that name as much as I do. Yeah, I, I, I feel like there should be some sort of contest for a, for a better, a better term. So yeah, I started watching John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry on, on bloggingheads.tv. And, and they talked about a lot of stuff, but especially issues of race in this just really nuanced, honest, yeah. unparanoid way. Just to, I'm sure many people know them from this podcast. Actually, John's never been on. Glenn has, but um, I've often sung their praises here. So if you're unaware of Glenn's Blogging Heads show, The Glenn Show, the where, Glenn he, show, where yes. he often talks to his colleague, John McWhorter. Glenn is a, an economist and um, John is a linguist, both African-American and both, you know, put them together and you get really the best discussions of race you'll ever hear. I mean, there, there's some other great people like um, yeah. the still undergraduate Coleman Hughes, which Coleman Hughes. is uh, yeah. mind-boggling. Yeah. <laughs> I think he should stay an undergraduate forever. Yeah, that's it's right. a great, it's a great yeah. gimmick, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I almost did that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, I think, are really the most intellectually honest brokers you're going to find. So, I, yeah, I started watching them and the, the YouTube algorithm sort of led me other places. And, you know, we, we don't, I don't think we need to go into great detail about who I was watching on YouTube. Some, some people were, were more interesting than others. But you know, it was really the beginning of what I now see as in the current media moment, the closest we can get to what it used to mean to just hang around and have conversations with your friends for hours and hours. That's not really possible for like a lot of reasons. And we really have this sort of simulacrum of it through this podcasting world. I don't think there's any accident. It's any accident that people are like listening to you and I talk for hours or, you know, listening to Joe Rogan for three yeah. hours talking to somebody. And that's because that need was just no longer being met in, in mainstream media. Having no time constraint is really a relevant variable. And in, in some ways, it's the most relevant variable. And it's something that people have bad intuitions about. They don't understand how 
really having no time constraint. I mean, it's, it's not enough just to have an, a long radio show or a long television show. I mean, having to bring something in at exactly 45 minutes or an hour right. is still a time constraint. And in the context of a podcast, you really can just think out loud and get yourself into the right. ditch and get yourself out of it. And Try things on. Yeah. Yeah. It, obviously, you're you're aware of the fact that people will or certainly can take your statements maliciously out of context, but anyone who's going to give you a full hearing will get the whole context. And the context is almost always exculpatory, unless you are an evil asshole. True, right? right. You know, Truly wrong, yes. Right. Yeah, unless you, unless you have bad intentions. Right. You're either just wrong about something, confused about something, you misspoke, or, but it's just like, the answer to all of that is more clarifying speech, you know, more thinking, both in private and in public. And what we've done is we've made the cost of thinking in public way too high. Yeah. Well, the cost of messing up. Yeah. The, the cost of not thinking in an extremely narrow, but, but, but not, narrow. But not even just messing up. It's just touching any perceived taboo which shouldn't be a taboo. I mean, it's like the, the, the things that people get in trouble for are, <laughs> right, are, are you know, completely legitimate statements right, into, like, right. that are, don't even have to be shored up by other defensive No, they're statements. so logical yeah. as to be banal, yeah. right, in so many cases. But yeah, you know, and this really gets to something that we were talking about in the beginning of this conversation in terms of the generational divide. So, you know, I teach graduate students, and um, I've had students say to me, like, you know, what what did you do when you were in, in your 20s? Like, how did you think of ideas and how, how did you sort of carve yourself out as a, as a writer? And, you know, I really had to think about it. And I thought, you know what I did a lot in my 20s is I would like come home from work and I would either go out for drinks with my friends and we would sit around for hours and like just what you just said, we would try things out. We would kind of test the waters. What do you think of the world? What do you think of this phenomenon? What do you think of this news story? Is it about this? Is it about that? Or if you didn't go out, you would pick up the phone and you would call your friend and you would talk to your friend for an hour or more. And the phone was attached to the wall. You couldn't walk around. You couldn't be in the car. You were actually sitting there and listening to the other person mm -hmm. and thinking and talking. And that is an example of something that you and I had the benefit of that young people now do not. And we don't either now because people just don't allow themselves these long conversations. And and either yeah. they don't, you know, my students were telling me that we we literally don't have time. I don't know if that's true. But I can tell you myself, I don't do it as much as I did 20 years ago. And and I think that the, the just the the very the, the metabolism of of conversation itself is so sped up and and it affects not only not only the the media but the way people's brains are wired and so i i really think that that's almost that is the problem with everything i mean it's it's kind of you know step 1 is to blame social media and twitter but i think there's something deeper than that yeah well this is something that that i noticed a few years ago i mean maybe it was 5 years ago but the different norms around using the telephone i mean just getting a cold call from even a close friend was surprising. I mean, there was something kind of aggressive about it. So oh, it's yes. a little bit like Hostile. having someone showing up at your house unannounced, right. right? And that has more or less stopped. I mean, I think 
almost all of my calls are sort of scheduled in advance by email or text. And there are only a couple of old school people in my life who will call me out of the blue. And it's a very old school move. I mean, it's just, it's like it's from another generation. And, you know, apart from my wife or somebody who I'm in contact with many times a day, it's everything is email or text. And that's just a completely different social apparatus being born around that. And it's, um, I mean, something may be gained, but there's some obvious things being lost. Yeah. And I think you have to like, it's very intuitive. You sort of hear tone and texture and where somebody's coming from and if they're they're actually making a statement or they're just kind of trying it out. And and again, it it gets back to these issues of sexual consent. You know, I, this is totally germane. I, I talk about this in the book. You know, there's I, I, if those of us who grew up before the Internet, before social media, we had to get our brains wired in such a way that we could navigate in-person situations. We, we had to figure out how to how to know what's going on in an intimate situation, how to get out of something, how to kind of negotiate an, an awkward encounter. And I think that in a lot of ways, people don't have the tools anymore because so much is done on screen and there's a sort of flattening of, of interaction. And, you know, one of the ways that I, I really try to be more forgiving of, of this younger generation is I say, you know, it, it may be that they do have to integrate things like affirmative consent because they just don't have the sort of cognitive experience of getting out of a sexual situation in a different way. And maybe that's okay. But I do think we have to recognize just the the drastic changes that have come about mm-hmm. in terms of just the way people interact with one another. How do you view our fate politically at the moment as we we're now mm-hmm. um, coming in at the end of the year, 2020 is upon us. We've got 11 months of just more and more pain in, in Trumpistan as we yeah. consider our options. My concern now, you know, the impeachment thing is still happening. He, he will almost certainly be impeached and, and not removed. Right. And it remains to be seen whether that is a politically disastrous thing to have, have attempted or at all helpful. But how do you view our, our prospects <laughs> yeah, at the moment? I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've come around on the impeachment thing. I was against it sort of strategically in the beginning, but I do think it's really sort of morally necessary. Yeah. But yeah, I am really depressed about the whole thing. I, I think we're about to hand him another term. I don't know who is out there. And, and, and again, I wonder if, you know, there's no incentive that the best people are just staying out of this. There have got to be better people, you know, in terms of the, the field of candidates. And, and they're just not not stepping forward. And, you know, again, I don't want to hammer away on the identity politics stuff too much. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, you know, stop, stop, you know, put, you know, t- tweeting your preferred pronouns, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris or, or whatever it is. You or or know, did, it, did you see Warren? Warren tweeted, there are other things in the tweet, but one of the statements in the tweet was, "Yeah, black trans women, I forget how she phrased it, but it was black trans women are the backbone of our democracy. (laughs) I think she said, well, the one I saw was trans and non-binary people are the backbone of the Democratic Party. No, I think this was democracy. This wasn't democracy. Even more. Yeah, yeah, but it was just, (laughs) she's going to get that vote. You've got it anyway. Exactly. It's madness politically. Right. And, you know, Kamala Harris dropped out of the race a couple of weeks ago, I guess now. And 
immediately there are accusations, I think even coming from her, or from at, her. Least, or at least her camp, that you know this is a sign of how far we have to go as a society. This is clearly sexism and, and racism. Ugh, such bad faith there. That is such a bad faith. I mean, it's, but, but, but let's just make this totally clear. First of all, there's Cory Booker who can't get arrested as a candidate who's a black man, right? So let's take the sexism out of it. And does anyone think that Michelle Obama would have had as unsuccessful a campaign as Kamala Harris if she were, were in the race? I mean, I think Michelle Obama could enter, you know, or Oprah, either of them could enter this race and walk away with it now, I think. Mm. And I mean, she, she had obvious problems with her campaign and with her history as a prosecutor. And she had you know, problems with the, the debate format where you, you could have Tulsi Gabbard come out and run her down for 30 seconds, and then she has no opportunity to respond. Right. But it, it really is bad faith, and I, I just don't know what's going to break the spell. Well, especially when you have people threatening to cancel Barack Obama for telling people to get their acts together right. on that yeah. note, on that score, right? I, you know, it's we have this idea now that that identity equals ideology, so that that immutable traits somehow come with a whole set of values. And that is just something that sort of caught fire through, you know, intersectional theory and, you know, stuff being taught on, you know, in humanities departments and on Twitter. And it's, it's, it's sort of like its own little entity. It's like its own little area of discussion. It, it's purely academic. And yet it's been embraced by people who want to be leaders of the free world. And it's like they're taking this tiny little phenomenon and and making it the, the sort of cornerstone of, of their campaign. I mean, you know, you say, you know, this idea that no black transgender person, for example, would vote for Trump, that the, the Democrats already have that contingent. So why pander to them? You know, I would say I, I, I bet there are transgender people who, who do vote for Trump. I mean, being, being transgender is not a political position. It, it might be if you are experimenting with gender identity for for other reasons and and your experimentation is being animated by you know a whole set of cultural concerns but you know this this idea that the the democrats seem to have that that somehow you need to to sort of capture this 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 sensibility that is so tiny it just really it exists in humanities departments and it exists on twitter and and it is, it's really only embraced by a tiny, tiny minority of people, but it has such outsized influence. That's really, that's really scary. Yeah. And, and it's like this, this tiny little phenomenon has just been allowed to grow in people's imaginations. And, and the Democrats are running with it. And, and the, the Republicans are having a field day. I should clarify what I was saying there. I mean, I guess I was to some degree using identity as a proxy for political view. I mean, I would bet a fair amount of money that whoever the Democratic candidate is going to be, he or she is going to sweep the black transgender vote. But it's more just that we're talking about a very small number of people. The election's not going to turn on the transgender vote. <laughs> and you, you, right. you have to worry about alienating whatever it is, the 17% who are persuadable, who may yet go either way. And it seems like a crazy political miscalculation around other things like Paying reparations for slavery, which I think is a totally legitimate and perhaps even necessary conversation for us to have as a society, yeah. 
but let's have it in December of next year, right? right. I mean, this is not the time to have it. It would be disastrous. And you, you, you have people fomenting you know, that conversation now. And ironically, these are precisely the people who think that the problem that we're up against is that there's so many people who are still racist in our society, right? Well, if you think that, let's get the actual right. racist out of office. Then it's important. It's all the more important. Yeah, yeah. so that we can correct course, right? There's just a, an element of self-sabotage right. to this that is really frustrating. It's almost like if you think strategically, that gets interpreted as some sort of it's it's you're you're doing harm to marginalized people like 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 being strategic is is some kind of uh active active aggression yeah like again you know, it's the same way the word nuanced has almost been been weaponized i've seen people say oh look another nuanced take wink wink as if that's like dog whistle for the alt-right or something right well um we'll see what trouble uh a white man and white woman got into in this conversation. At least um, you're a woman. I could say you're uh, yeah, I, you're better yeah. off than I am. And I want can I say one more thing about that? Yeah, um yeah, yeah. so yeah, I mean one of the one of the criticisms of of the book that that comes up is like, oh, well, you know, you're you're a white woman, you know, you're privileged. It's it's easy for you to to say that 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 women are are doing better than men, for example. Um you know, it's 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 all too easy for you to critique the me too movement because you're you're not in a you know you're you're not in a position of being marginalized and you know i i i see where people are coming from but again this is an example of of leading with identity rather than just ideas like i i i'm not approaching this as a white woman as much as i'm approaching all of this as someone with a certain kind of bullshit detector and and i don't think that that is something that that white white people or any other group have a have a monopoly on and so you know again it's just it's been really interesting to to go out and talk about this book because the gulf between the way that like the new yorker or you know sort of you know major media reacts and what people are saying to me on the ground and it and it events it's it's completely different and so you know there again i think that's that's to your point like like the, the candidates need to think about the people that are actually out there voting and not worry so much about what what Twitter and, you know, therefore NPR and The New Yorker and, and on down the, the list are going to are going to do with it. Yeah, it's something I've been slow and many of us have been slow to appreciate just how much Twitter does not reflect the real world. It has this an outsized effect on the real world because or at least on the especially in the political world because you know Trump uses it the way he does and then journalism responds right but most people are not on Twitter but the problem is is that institutions the, yeah, listen to care, Twitter too yeah, much yeah they care about everything they, they that happens care. There. Yeah. right like if Disney is firing a director because yeah. a handful of people on Twitter decided he was a bad person then no one's working for Disney they're all working for Twitter yeah, exactly. But in terms of gauging public opinion and, you know, getting a sense of just, you know, how dire it's looking for Trump in the impeachment hearing, you know, whereas most people are simply not paying attention or they're lapping up whatever Fox News is giving them on the topic, you can really be misled as to what's going on. I think it's part of why so many of us were blindsided by the election result in 2016 is we we have our own echo chamber for yeah it's not for want of 
trying to broaden it in some cases, but still, you don't actually know what you're not seeing even on Twitter, right? People have, right. you know, I, I follow that- some people who are Trump supporters on Twitter just so that I, I know I'm not completely um, blind to what Trump Twitter looks like. And it is simply another world. Like things that are unambiguously so in my main Twitter feed, you know, have a, a negative one in front of them in Trumpistan. And mm-hmm. it's incredible how divergently the same set of facts can play in the, in the two cases. Yeah. And, and what frustrates me is that the, the left has used the Trump emergency as an excuse to, to not be totally intellectually honest. Like, it's like, yeah. oh, no, we can't have a complicated conversation because we need all hands on deck and it's hashtag resistance. And we just need to keep this, you know, as simple and as ham fisted as possible. And, and I think that's going to backfire. And it, it already has. Oh, yeah. And it, it will continue to. It has continuously. And this is it's an asymmetry that doesn't get observed very often. But it, the left and right function by different political and ethical principles. So like when, whenever the New York Times or the New Yorker or the, the Atlantic or you know, even CNN make an error, it really does count against them in a way that it doesn't when Fox News right. makes I mean, Fox News is just, it's not even in the facts reporting business, really, most of the time. And yet they never suffer a reputational cost, right? It's, just, it's, it's priced into That's the whole thing. That's part of thing. their brand. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and so it is with Trump. But, you know, one misstatement from, you know, Biden or anyone else who would be running against him is a catastrophe. We have to put our house in order. And yeah, I, mean, I share your dismay about the, the left um, feeling that they don't actually have to have well-targeted attacks, even on somebody with as much attack surface as the president. I hear you. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, Megan, before I let you go, uh, tell people where they can find you in the um, cyberspace, if we still oh, call it that. Okay. Well, I am yeah. on Twitter. I'm at uh, a Twitter. I'm at uh, at Megan underscore Dom. And Megan has an H in it, M-E-G-H-A-N, and then D-A-U-M. I am not on Instagram, although it's mm-hmm. been come to my attention that there are several fake accounts with my name and, and picture. So if you try okay. to we'll follow ignore us, you. it won't be me. We'll, we'll ignore whatever we see with your name the, on it. Those, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I have a website. I'm, I'm easy to find. Well, um, thank you for the time. It's, it's great to uh, meet you virtually. Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks. Thanks.